really say about sacrifices? What does the Bible really say about women in positions of authority? What does the Bible really say about... I'm sure you've got something. I've got about a hundred things that I would ask. So have a think about that and, and let us know. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much that you are our God. Lord, thank you that despite the fact that the leaders and authorities of your chosen people looked upon you with scorn and disdain and sought and succeeded in murdering you, that you are not a dead God, that you are not a historical figure alone. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that although they plotted against you, your plot was to save us by your life. You died, and now you live, and are right here with us. Lord, as we consider this story of how the nations plotted against you, of how you plotted for the nations, may you open our eyes. Lord, we know these stories. We've read them so many times, but I pray and ask that you would bring out of the storehouse new treasures as well as old. Enlighten our hearts this morning. Holy Spirit, move through our minds and, and I dare to ask that you would even use the words that come through these lips to speak something of your truth and your grace and your good news. Amen. The plot against Jesus. We know it so well, don't... Can, by the way, can you believe that Easter is two weeks away? It is so close. It's about time we started our Easter series. The plot against Jesus. In, in its simplicity is its elegance. Not merely just a human plot, but... But Satan enters into, we read in Luke chapter 22, Satan enters into Judas. Judas is already miffed at Jesus, thinks he shouldn't be spending money recklessly, thinks he should be just telling people where they should get off. Judas goes to the high priests, he knows they don't like Jesus, he says, I will betray him to you. They say, brilliant, their smiles go up to the roof. They give him some money, they say, we'll pay you to betray him. There is the plot line of Easter from the perspective of the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the, the high priest and the, the other priests and all those people who thought they were in charge. It's simple, isn't it? Well, seeing as that's the, uh, the title of the message, I suppose that's the end of the sermon. The plot, there it is. But why? 
Now, the thing that, that strikes me as we get to Luke chapter 22, and really we should read the whole of the gospel before getting to there. We read in verse 2 that the leading priests and teachers of religious law were plotting to kill Jesus. Why? Do you remember a few weeks back we looked at 1 Peter 3 verse 20 something and Peter said to them, come on mates, think about it. If you're going to do good, who's going to go for you? Who's going to attack you if you're doing good things? And surely this is absolutely true of Jesus. What has He done? He has rescued people. He has given sight to the blind. Jesus Himself says that that, uh, Luke chapter 4, He says from uh, the scroll of Isaiah, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to bring good news to the poor. Isn't that a good thing? He has sent me to proclaim that captives will be released good news. Uh, He he has sent me to proclaim that the blind will see, that the oppressed will be set free, that the time of the Lord's favor has come. I am here to do good for God's people and for all those who would turn to Him. I am here to bless them. And we go through the Gospels and just time and again the prophecy is fulfilled and He gives sight to the blind and the lame starts jumping up and walking around and the dead are raised to life. Jairus' daughter, Lazarus. And because he does such good things, those in charge say, wow, brilliant, isn't he fantastic? Let's, Let's induct Jesus into the temple hall of fame. They should have. It's his temple anyway. (laughs) But no. They wanted to kill him. Why? Got a few reasons from from what Luke is saying, and there are many reasons why they wanted to kill him. In the bit just before where Alan read in in Luke 20, verse 19, at chapter 19, we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. And as he comes and he looks over the city, we see that, that fantastically poignant moment where he weeps over Jerusalem because he knows what is about to happen and he longs that the people would just turn to him. But then he goes into the city. Verse 45 of chapter 19, he entered the temple and began to drive out the people selling animals for sacrifices and said to them, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer. And you have turned it into a den of thieves. And after that he taught daily in the temple And here's the key bit, but the leading priests, the teachers of religious law, and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. (laughs) But they could think of nothing because the people hung on his every word. I suspect they'd had a few plans already, but what Luke says to us here is where they begin to plan. For his death. 
This is probably the Monday of the Easter week. I think it's Mark who tells us that Jesus clears the temple the day after his triumphal entry into the city. Why did they want to kill him? Because Jesus looked at what they were doing and said, I insist on true worship and true religion. Probably the places where they were set up to sell all this stuff was was in the outer courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles. The the only place where people who were non-Jewish could go and and sort of be in the temple of God and, and, and just sort of worship God there. This was the place where the nations were meant to come in. And here the Jewish people had decided we're going to set up a little bit of a bonus scheme here. We're going to sell some animals. We're going to change some money because Exodus chapter 30 says, well, you have to pay... uh, for your stuff in, in, in this amount, there's so many shekels and it has to be a shekel, so we better change over from your currency so that we can get your right currency according to Exodus. Um, and by the way, we all know that when you change money, well, you know, you cost a little bit more than it actually get. Uh, and, and so, you, you understand, we'll, we'll make a bit of extra stuff. That's it's good stewardship of the temple, isn't it? And I'm willing to bet that all of these people who were selling their wares and changing their money had a bit of a side deal with old Caiaphas and the other leading people of the temple so that, you know what, you'd get a bit of a cut. And and, and technically, I suppose you could, if you wanted to sacrifice, you could bring your own animal in. But if you were a shrewd business dealer, you'd make sure that only the animals that you sold would get approved by the priests. And into this situation, Jesus walks and he goes ballistic. I love this passage because it it goes away with all of those people who think of Jesus as a smiling, smiling Middle Eastern man with a big beard. He goes ballistic. Luke is very short in telling us what happens here. The others tell us he turns him over and, and perhaps even takes a whip, according to John, if it's the same incident, and, and whips the people. And he says to them, my house is to be a place of prayer. You've made it into a den of thieves. And he's quoting there from two passages, from Isaiah 57 and Jeremiah Three, I think. Don't quote me on that one. And the thing which, which I find fascinating is that the passage he quotes from Isaiah 57, my house is to be a place of prayer. If you read through that chapter, we don't have time to read it now, but, but read through it. It's about how all nations will come to God and find citizenship in Jerusalem. Uh, God, uh, God says here in, in verse 7 of Isaiah 56, I will bring them, all these nations, to my holy mountain of Jerusalem and will fill them with joy in my house of prayer. I will accept their burnt offerings and sacrifices. My temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations. I will bring others too besides my people Israel. 
Jesus looks back and says, this was meant to be a place where my name was glorified and the nations came in. And what have you done? You've taken the place where the nations are meant to come and you've turned it into a business dealing. And what's more, you should have realized because it's in the very texts that you preach. This is the stuff. Your daily bread is to know Isaiah and Jeremiah. You know this stuff and yet you have done it. And why do they want to kill him? Because he is daring to stand against them. A, to say, you guys aren't living the kind of life that God wants. Which is, by the way, very offensive to say to somebody who has set their whole life up as the authority on the kind of life that God wants. They were personally offended at Jesus. And B, because Jesus was going to, he was just mucking up their whole way of life. Getting rid of their extra income. Daring to put himself up as the authority. This nobody from Galilee. This carpenter's son. Hadn't had any training. Wasn't like Paul who studied under Gamaliel. Or wasn't like somebody wise and, and learned. Here is just Jesus with a funny accent. It was a funny accent, the Galilean one. Provincial. Think British accents from... From the, oh, I can't do British accents. From the deep south. Or American accents from the hillbilly areas. And here he stands. No. We are in charge. We decide what happens. Don't try and quote God's word to us. We are the ones who judges what God's word really says. They wanted to kill him because he insisted on true worship and true religion. And they wanted to kill him <laughs> because not only was he wiser than they were, but he was also more popular. That's really weird. One of the reasons I believe that they wanted to kill Jesus was because he was showing them up. Look at what happens in chapter 20, verse 1. Jesus one day, uh, probably the next day, Tuesday, he's teaching the people in the temple. And this is a thing, he just went into the temple, cleared it out, and all of a sudden, there he is in the temple preaching. By the way, this is not done. If you want to teach, if you want, as a, as a person who's not a priest to teach, you can go to the synagogue, where nobody really cares. But how dare you come into the temple, where the priests preach. And there Jesus sits and he preaches to them. And they come to him and say, mate, come on. Probably a bit more aggro than that. What do you think you're doing? Who said you could do all this stuff? Who said you could throw out the money changers and the animal sellers? Who said you could sit here and teach? That's my spot. Who said you could do this? 
By what authority do you dare to come into my place? And if you give us the wrong answer, well, that's wonderful because then we can kill you. I'm asking this question, so why, what authority? And, and it seems almost to us like Jesus has an evasive answer, doesn't it? He says, well, I'll ask you a question about John. Was he from God or was he just a sort of like a, a, a bloke making up his own words? Why doesn't Jesus just say, God sent me? Why does he give him this question in return? Well, I'll give you a question myself. I think it's because I think it's because Jesus wanted to see whether they were actually looking for an answer or an excuse. Whether they'd already made up their minds about him. Or whether they were open to the good news. And they should have been open because John had come. And you read that passage from John where Jesus was baptized. And they should have known from there that that Jesus had been anointed and publicly proclaimed the Son of God. And yet they, they, it's the same old thing. Their hearts were hard. They didn't want any challenge to their authority. They didn't like the idea of John saying, well, you need to be baptized for forgiveness because they were obviously already right with God because they did all the right things. Or at least were seen to do all the right things. It says a lot about them that at Jesus' question they don't discuss amongst themselves, well, what was John? Was, was he from God? Was he, was he a human? That's not the question they, they sit in a corner quickly and discuss. They've already decided John was a nuisance and good riddance to bad rubbish when Herod killed him. And what they discuss is How are we going to get out of this one? All the people love John. We thought he was a two-bit so-and-so. If we say anything like that, we'll get lynched ourselves. Not we don't know. (laughs) We're not going to say. Because it might impact on the way that we are viewed. And Jesus says, well, neither will I say. Because it's self-evidently clear and you've made up your mind. And we're told there that 
Not only are they planning to kill him. NIV says kill here. They were planning to destroy him. I wonder whether sometimes we don't need to look at ourselves in the light of these high priests and elders and and authorities. Because I think they show something of the insidious nature of sin. How it is so often a, a covert kind of thing. They know the truth, but they will refuse to own up to it. How it's about appearances rather than truth. And isn't that so often the case with us? Because we're all good in this church, aren't we? Yeah, we look at each other and, oh, we're so good. We never do anything wrong. But how much of that is for fear of the people as opposed to a recognition of who we really are and importantly of who he really is? It's possible even for us to sometimes pretend like we are seekers for truth when in fact we've already made up our mind. And, and I guess this comes back to the next series that we're going to be doing. Some of these topics are going to be controversial and, and the question we're going to ask you is, is going to be difficult. And, and do we come as those who already know the answers or as those who seek the truth? So they wanted to kill Jesus because he was a nuisance. He he was taking their position of authority that they thought they were in charge. They wanted to kill him because everybody liked him better than they liked him, uh, than they liked them. And they wanted to kill him because he dared to stand against them and their false religion. In the end, they wanted to kill him Because they wanted to be in charge. And they wanted to just keep the status quo of their position and their power and their authority. This this reminds me so much of the Genesis narrative where where, where the the serpent tempts Eve to eat the, the apple. Why? So that you'll become like God. In other words, so that you will have the authority like God has. Sin. And it comes back to the same sin here. We want to be in charge because it's so nice to have these underlings underneath us. And we've got this parable of the The evil farmers, as the NLT highlights it. 
And although Jesus here is not speaking to the deputation that had come to accuse him of usurping authority, he speaks to the crowd, but he's speaking about them. He's saying to the crowd around him, this is by which authority I do these things. And we know the story, it's a, it's a simple story of an owner who has a farm and who leases it out and, and he's supposed to get a cut of the, the, the crop all the time. You know, it's just sort of like share farming. I own the place, you look after it, I'll take a cut. Fantastic idea. He goes away, he's away a long time, the tenants are in place. Who are the tenants? The tenants are, are, are the leaders and the, the priests and the elders. Those who are in charge of the people of Israel, in charge of God's people who have the position to, to ensure that God's will be done in that place. To see fruit coming out. To see the kingdom grow. To see the farm flourish. And we know what Jesus says here, the tenants are there. These high priests have this position. And the owner God sends for his tithe, for his cut and profit after profit after profit. thrown in jail, murdered, derided like John. And eventually the, the master God says, well, I'll send my son, my son that I love. Because surely they'll listen to him. That's a fair expectation, isn't it? You... Listen to the guy who owns the place, who's the heir of the place. He's got a bit of authority. The tenants know the son, I'm sure. They should know him. And Jesus here, as he tells the story, he's thinking through to the next week. They took the son threw him out, killed him. Jesus saying to those who had come to accuse him, I know what you are going to do to me. What will the owner do? <laughs> of course he'll come punish the people the tenants that's a strange little cry from the crowd there isn't it God forbid not God forbid that he should punish those evil tenants God forbid that he should give our inheritance as the people of God to others God forbid that the Gentiles be allowed 
God forbid that you and me sitting here today be part of the people of God. God forbid. Never let that happen. Jesus is quite blunt. He says, you say God forbid. God said you'd say God forbid. (laughs) Psalm 118. You reject this cornerstone, it's a stumbling block. A capstone, as 1 Peter puts it. It will crush or stumble and destroy all those who stand against it. And now they really wanted to kill him. You see, the interesting thing about the plot against Jesus is that in so many ways, Jesus pushed the plot forwards. (laughs) He pushed their buttons and said, will you choose to follow me? Will you listen to the Son? Will you murder Him? Will you base your religion on your own comfort? your own prestige, your own sense of importance and authority? Or will you open the gospel to the world? You see, these tenants back then, they presumed on God's grace, but it's, it can happen so easily today as well. The church in South Africa where I grew up standing on religion to say that black people were less than white people. And to them, Jesus says, I will get new tenants. Luther, uh, Luther, uh, Hitler tried to use the German Lutheran church to get the people on side for all that he was doing. And many pastors, Christians, went along with it. And God says, I will get new tenants. God's not afraid of getting new tenants. But you know what? He doesn't do it at the drop of a hat. He sends warning, warning, sent his son. And they plotted to kill him because he made them uncomfortable. They plotted to kill him 
because he wasn't religious enough. That's the plot. And over the next few weeks, we'll hear about God's plot in return. Father God, thank you that you are the one who came to save us. Thank you, Lord, that no longer do we have to worry about religion because we have you. Thank you that you are the great shepherd, that you guide us each by the hand. Father, help us to to live lives of integrity before you, where your lordship and your authority stands as the authority over our lives.